This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Dr. Francis Voorhees, or Frank as he likes to be called, is a non-hunter. And he is a conservation economist. And what's great about Frank is I met him during a live webinar with the Wild Now Foundation in Kenya, in which we were supposed to be pitted against one another, a hunter against a non-hunter. And when I finished talking about hunting, Frank's opening statement was, I'm a non-hunter, but I have no problems with hunting. And that piqued my interest, in that here is a non-hunter, a professor, an academic, saying he has no problems with hunting, though he just doesn't do it himself. So I just had to have him on the podcast to talk about his thoughts, his ideas, and his general feelings about trophy hunting, hunting, the sustainable use of wildlife, and how those things are all wrapped together. Well, I'm going to hit the record button so that we can get going, given that you've got a time constraint on us. Yeah, the big boss has called a meeting. So, you know, he, you know, he he's the one that pays the paycheck. So you got to. <laughs> yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, 
uh, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know that uh, I know this will be a quick, hard-hitting conversation because the last time we were together it was a very quick, hard-hitting conversation too. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Frank? Okay, my name is Frank Voorhees, or Francis is what my mother called me, so that's official. Um, I'm an American, as you can tell by my accent, but I live in the UK, and I describe myself as a conservation economist. Relevant to uh, this call, I'm the director of the African Wildlife Economy Institute at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, and also the academic director of the School of Wildlife Conservation at the African Leadership University in Kigali. But like most of us, I'm doing the job on a Zoom call these days, sadly. Yes, sir. When do you, when do you think you're going to be going back to uh, Kigali? Anywhere. Stellenbosch, Kigali, Nairobi, they're all on the red list from the UK. So we can't really leave this island at the moment. So hopefully by July, we'll have some idea. But at the moment, no plans. Yeah, yeah. Sadly. Well, we were brought together... Uh, by a mutual friend, Mimo Some, out of Kenya for a conference with the Wild Now Foundation out of Kenya. And really, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we were, we were supposed to be pitted against one another because I was supposed to have this perspective of I'm a hunter. And Frank, you were supposed to have this perspective of being a non-hunter. Well, I'm not a hunter, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm opposed to the business. I just don't hunt. I don't play football either, so this is some things we don't do. And I certainly don't understand cricket in this country. So, I mean, but, you know, I don't think it should be illegal just because it doesn't make any sense. Well, that is a very good point. And I think just because it doesn't make any sense to you doesn't mean it has to be illegal. And one of the things that you said in the conversation that we had together really struck home for me. And you said this. You said, I want to see wildlife used for more than just meat on a plate, if I, if I got it correct, um, or food on a plate? Well, what I first want to do is to see it used for more than just looking at it. So I'm, right. I'm interested in the meat on the plate, actually, Robbie, more than I am about just the ecotourism. More than, just a, photo, more than a photograph. That's right. That's more right. than a That's photograph. Correct. So what you've got now is we're trying to save animals through recreational photography, basically, where people drive around in vehicles and look at them and take pictures. And that's fine. And there's money to be made there. And it does help. And it brings in some revenues. And it's a lot of fun to do. But that's not the only thing. And actually, it's probably not enough revenue, as evidenced by Kenya, to actually encourage landowners to keep wildlife on their land. It is don't get enough people that want to drive out and take pictures of them. So you're going to have to do something else with these animals if you want them to compete with alternative land uses, which, and it, let's take uh, Kenya, what we were talking about, Robbie. Kenya is a booming economy now there, and people, the middle-class society in Kenya wants good food on the table. They want good building materials. They want good, um, 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 what do you call it, supplies for clothing, for shelter, what have you. So what's the landowner doing? The landowner is converting the land to products that they can sell. So they've just built a big avocado farm next to Amboseli National Park. NGOs up in arms. But can you blame the farmer? You can't. What's he going to do? Try and get you and I to go down there and take a picture of a couple kudu? No. Right. But if he could do a bit of hunting and a bit of wildlife meat and a bit of photography, then maybe it could compete with the avocados. But right now, just the ecotourism, photographic tourism on its own, doesn't 
provide enough of a revenue stream for the landowner to say, I'd rather have people come and take pictures of wildlife than plant crops or, or have cattle or goats or sheep or, in the case of Kenya, camels. It's big. A lot of people farm camels up north. They could be farming wildebeest, but they're farming camels instead. So it's all tied to value, right? You, you said you started off by saying you're a conservation economist. And yeah. I think when you boil it down, obviously, the, the world turns on money. The world turns on economies and the wildlife world needs to also turn on economy and value. And I think a lot of people, um, maybe not a lot of people, I think people get clouded by the fact that, you know, wildlife can't just be cute and cuddly standing out there. And, and that's what they're good for. Because if they are just cute and cuddly, that isn't good enough, Right. Well, I mean, cute and cuddly is nice, and the economics is, is nice, but even conservation is really about economics. If you take the IUCN definition, International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is the granddaddy international organization in this business, they came out with a definition in 1980 in a, in a document called the World Conservation Strategy. Look for it on the web. It's, it's a brilliant document. It's the first place that talked about conservation in terms of development and called it sustainable development. Basically put conservation and development together, you get sustainable development. How did, how did they define conservation? It's the management of the biosphere for sustainable human benefit. So it's not managing wildlife for wildlife. It's managing wildlife and wild habitats for us and for our grandchildren. So how do you translate the concept of benefit? In a modern marketplace economy, a lot of the benefits are translated into goods and services that are made available that we can buy and sell and so on. Now, that, that plays differently in different parts of the world based on the property rights structure you have for wilderness and wildlife. But essentially, conservation is about managing our planet for us in a sustainable, responsible, inclusive way. So conservation is about the economic and cultural and social values that the natural environment delivers for humanity. That's what it's about. So in obviously, you've done a lot of work in Africa. You've done a lot of work in understanding conservation models in South Africa. You have stated at the beginning of this podcast, you are a non-hunter, but you don't have a problem. Yeah, I'm not opposed hunting. to hunting. I'm a wimp. I, I picked up a gun once and pulled the trigger and fell over, and that was enough for me. It's just not my thing. But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. You know. In fact, there's Where a lot of good hunting... with it. It's a good industry. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the good in the industry, uh, obviously, because you've done a lot of research in it. Um, and obviously, I, I really value your perspective because to me, it's a perspective that is not self serving. Someone could look at me, look at Robbie, and say, Look, Robbie, everything you say about hunting is self serving because you're a hunter. Yeah. And you want hunting to stay around. Um, so from your perspective, can you talk through this idea that, I, dare I say very simplistically, you're okay with hunting? Why are you okay with hunting? Well, if you take, um, let's take, let's talk, start with South Africa, because a lot of people do. South Africa is a very big hunting industry, um, very well-established hunting industry. And most of it, 85% of the revenues are from local hunts. Not from the international tourists flying in from Minnesota to shoot a lion or whatever. It's the locals that hunt. And they hunt for recreation and for meat and for animal products. 
And so, in fact, those go hand in hand, just like in the States or anywhere else. People, when they go out fishing, they aren't miserable. They go out and fish because they enjoy it, but they also bring the fish home and they put it in the kitchen and cook it and eat it. And it, and so most of the hunting in South Africa is a combination of, of local recreation and local um, um, food, food security. And and people go and they hunt for um, on a regular. They call it biltong hunting there after the dried meat, you know, the beef jerky down there. So that's great. That's and it brings a lot of revenue in, and it brings a lot of revenue into lots of landscapes in the country. So in South Africa, where they've essentially privatized um, ownership of wildlife, a land owner, whether it's a community or an individual farmer, can look on the and say, Do I want to plant corn? Do I want to have cattle? Or do I want to have wildlife? Well, with the corn and the cattle, he's got products that he can sell that people will eat, but nobody's going to take pictures of them and nobody's going to want to shoot the cows. So there's no, but if he puts in wildlife, he could get a bit of hunting, he could get a bit of ecotourism, and he can get a bit of, um, of animal products, leather, hide, bones, what have you. Um, so that's one aspect. I mean, it varies in different parts. In, in Kenya, and we'll pick on Kenya again, when they banned hunting in the 1970s, what happened to the large wildlife populations? They went down. Not up, they went down. One was the loss of revenue, which we all know, which we just talked about, means that somebody would rather have camels or have avocados and wildlife right. on their property. But the second was the loss of governance, because the hunting industry played a very important role in, if you will, monitoring, policing the countryside, because they were out there with an industry and paid attention. And when they took the hunters out of the rural areas in Kenya, it was a free-for-all. And poaching just went up. Now, in Kenya, there's a huge poaching now, mostly for meat, but there's also poaching for the export of ivory and, and rhino horn and all that, too. Without the hunting industry there, you, the, there's no revenue stream and there's increased costs of, of protection and policing. So it's, it's really problematic. So hunters play a, a role in revenue stream, countryside management, monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Plus, um, as you're in the business, Robbie, there's a whole heck of a lot of people that hunting is what they do. Like, I don't do it, but that doesn't mean other people sure. don't do it. It's it's a perfectly um, well-established thing that we as humans have been doing since we were on this planet. You know, we hunt and we gather. and right. So it's not just economic. It's cultural. It's spiritual. It's, you know, it's. You know, it's the way it is. And, and and in Kenya right now, I'm involved with some very serious discussions about reopening the wildlife economy there. Wrapped more around meat, uh, meat at the moment because they're very nervous about hunting because they've gone for 40, 50 years without it. But they are talking about it. So there's a discussion going on about reopening hunting. How would you start that, Frank? How would you start that? Would you start it like the classic campfire scenario out of Zimbabwe, community-based natural resource management? Is that the way forward potentially in Kenya? Yeah, they, they've got a leg up over the campfire model already in that they've got a much better structure of community conservancies in Kenya, but they just don't have anything they can do on those conservancies except photographic tourism. The campfire model had a problem is that the communities weren't like, if you will, legally structured. They weren't well incorporated. And so when revenues did come in, then the government would step in and say they should go to the district level. It'd be like the county level in the states. And then the campfire program has been sort of problematic. But what campfire had that Kenya doesn't have, it had trophies. It had big animals that you could shoot. It was basically wrapped on elephant hunting. Um, the, one of the challenges with Kenya is that they don't have the trophies they used to have 50 years ago. So they, 
they can compete for sort of top-end hunts at the moment because they just don't have the product on the ground, if you will. So my suspicion is that they would probably want to start with more like the South African biltong hunting, developing a domestic industry, wrap it around food security, wrap it around in enabling um, people in the north of Mount Kilimanjaro, the dry, Mount Kenya, excuse me, north of Mount Kenya, the dryland areas up north to restock wildlife, sell meat to the cities, and also bring people out for you know weekend hunts and so on. And not necessarily go for the international safari until the stocks build up, till they've got something they can sell at an auction in, you know, in um, Las Vegas or whatever, you know. At a, you know, they don't quite have even in the '90s when we did a big study back in the '90s, they 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 couldn't compete with Zimbabwe and South Africa with the with the trophies they have, but they they could get there. There's all other complications too, and you you know you're in the states, so you know about the issues with guns. Kenya's very strict on guns, so they don't allow. So another thing is not that they're necessarily anti-hunting, but they're a bit nervous about allowing a proliferation of guns domestically, mm. which then is another agenda you have to deal with. They're very strict on it. When we moved to Kenya, they took away our kids' toy guns. They were illegal in the country. You couldn't even have a toy wow. gun. You know, wow. they're very strict on it, and they you know it's been means they have a lot less you know gun killings than the U.S. does for sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of you know one of the- the, the biggest. I know you mentioned biltong hunting as a as a driver of local economies. Naturally, trophy hunting of uh, overseas clients coming in and playing a lot of money is a huge driver of wildlife conservation in Africa. What's your thoughts to this idea of trophy hunting? Well, tro- oh, for first of all, trophy hunting, sport hunting, recreational hunting, whatever you want to call it, people that come in and they do it as a holiday. That's fine. Um, go back to Kenya. Kenya has a big sport fishing industry. Then they, and the trophy fishing. Yes, I remember both, you saying this. Both in the Indian Ocean, in saltwater, and in Lake Victoria. So you can go now to, um, you can go and look at it, a, a really top-end camp like Governor's Camp in Masemar. You can go there and spend a few days and look at the animals. And then you can add on a couple more days and go trophy fishing in Lake Victoria. So they are, they have a hunting industry, but the wildlife has to swim. It, it's not allowed to walk around on four legs. So, the, you know, even Kenya's got it. And, and in some places, I was working in a cutada, which is the uh, Portuguese word for a hunting concession in Mozambique. I was working on one of the cutadas, cutada five, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to put up a mansion plan. There was no a gorgeous piece of real estate, um, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it, eight hours north of Maputo. and um, huge piece of real estate they had. And um, there was no way they were going to bring ecotourism in there. There just wasn't, it was too far away. Eight hour drive is too far from um, from Maputo. You can drive a couple hours to Kruger Park. All the facilities are there for the ecotourism side. Right. So they weren't opposed to it, but it, hunting was the way to actually restock. That whole area was, the, the landscape was beautiful. There was no wildlife left. It all been eaten. So the, to restock the area, it had to all be wrapped around a trophy hunting model. And then what they were working on um, trying to get the permission to do was actually not just have big game hunters come in and hunt, but big game hunters come in and invest in 20,000 hectare blocks, 50,000 hectare blocks that they would then um, put up lodges and so on and so forth. So it was, um, hunting makes a lot of sense in a lot of landscapes. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a way to get some revenue out of remote areas that aren't on the tourism track. 
Yeah. So, and why not? You know, and you can bring in Germans and Russians and Indians and Canadians and, you know, and then they come in and they spend money and they go to the hotels and the airports and this huge multiplier effect. And it's great. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting analogy that you bring up the idea that trophy fishing is essentially the same thing. And, and especially again, using Kenya as an example, they're allowed to uh, trophy hunt for their aquatic species but they're not allowed to trophy hunt for their their terrestrial species. Some of it they do catch and release, but you've also got variations of that with with hunting um, of terrestrial animals where you can dart hunt and, you know, take your picture with next to the animal and then it wakes up and runs away, you know, and they do some of that too. So some of it's catch and release, some of it's catch and eat, you know. Frank, do you think that there's, look into the future, one of the things that is constantly leveled against us as hunters is, you know, the trophy hunting is disgusting. And, and obviously, this is coming from the animal rights side of things, right? That you're just using it, that you're not allowed to hunt for fun. Uh, by hunting for fun, you're just putting a trophy on the wall, the head is on the wall, and you're, you know, you're just this pagan that does that. And our argument typically back is is in line with what you've just been saying, that it is you know, in very rural areas of Africa and in the world, it's a very valid economic model for the sustaining uh, of wildlife as well as the benefit of the community. If you had to project in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, is there a model, maybe we haven't thought about it yet, maybe it's on the fringes, is there a model that could replace trophy hunting in these very rural areas? Well, yeah, it depends on the landscape and what the land can do. But people will look at what they can grow on the land, what they can produce on the land. So around the Maasai Mara for the last um, de- couple decades, what we've seen is an increase in crop farming. So they're fencing big areas, not to keep animals in, but to keep them out so they can plant crops. Why? Because the city of Nairobi now has money and they want to buy those crops. And so what I'm arguing is what's killing Africa is not poverty in in the rural areas, but prosperity in the cities, which means that there's a value chain you can get onto if you can supply products to it. Now, if you could supply wild, uh, fresh venison, fresh kudu and impala to the cities, you might do that. But right now you can't. So what do you do? You get those things out of the way and you you put in what you can. The, The line that I I sometimes say in Kenya is you've got the farmer in the Rift Valley and He's raising goats, and on on his property comes an impala owned by the government. All you can do is take a picture. Maybe you can get somebody from South Africa to fly up and take a picture of it. That's not going to happen. So which one is he allowed to eat his grass, his goat or the impala? Mm -hmm. He lets the goat eat the grass because he can get the milk out of the goat, the hide, the meat, and so on. The impala is useless. Now, if the impala is a lion that comes on, he's going to take out the goat. So you get rid of the lion right away. And if the impala is in the not an impeller, but an elephant, he's going to trash your whole farm. So you get rid of him right away too. And that's what's happening now. It's wildlife is being cleared off the land because there's no use for it. So it's it's a pest. It has to go. So in other words, if if you need to get hunting in as one way to make, in other it's it's not, if hunting goes away, it's sort of like, well, maybe we need to encourage more hunting to make wildlife on the land more valuable, if you will. and. Um, and so a lot of this anti-hunting stuff, I think, is very anti-conservation. It's 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 not looking at uses of, of animals that wouldn't encourage landowners to maintain those areas. And you can go a bit further than that. I don't see anything wrong with hunting in national parks either. 
Right. National parks that depend solely on tourism, obviously COVID, we all know, hit everybody on tourism. Sure. But there's no reason why a park, and in South Africa, um, Pilansburg was famous for this. It's a national park from a former homeland where they still hunt in the park. So they have a national park in which you have tourism and hunting all regulated, licensed out, brings the revenues in, maintains the landscape. Voila, perfect. You know, great. Yeah, as you said, it's a, it's the it's the layers of value, right? It's and doing it re- in a regulated fashion and making sure everyone's coordinated. And you, again, there's things like you know trying to keep it off social media. There's there's no reason to put it on social media if you're going to get these massive backlashes from the the anti-hunting establishment to say what are you guys doing versus do it. But you don't have to splash it all over social media. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the social media side of the thing is a bit difficult. But if you look, all right, I'm, I'm in the UK, and we don't have much in the way of predators here except for the humans. And we're not predating. And so one of the problems you've got here is way too many deer. If they, if maybe, we, and there was a lot of hunting here, and there's the pheasant shooting, and that's all, it's canned pheasant shooting. You know, they're all bred up and released, and people blow them up. And it's very popular, but they probably should be taking off a lot more um, deer here, especially up in Scotland, because those things are dangerous on the roads and everything. On the one hand, on the other hand, they taste really good. So why not harvest them? And if you're going to harvest them, why not turn the harvesting process into a cash flow, not a cost? So why pay somebody to harvest a deer, you know, some government official to go out and take right. the deer out? Why not turn it into a hunting thing? And, and, and right. essentially, that's what they do in the states. They they allow the 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 deer to be harvested, you know, and by people, and they go out and hunt, and that keeps the populations in check. Mm-hmm. So they allow humans to predate, which we should. We're, we're, it's not the lions that are at the top of the food chain. We are, you know. Yeah, the UK and, has a pretty good model in terms of you know selling venison into the supply chain, right? Supplying the high end restaurants and the high-end supermarkets with venison and i heard through COVID, obviously venison prices have just tanked you would have they've thought, tanked but that meant that we, would, we could go into waitrose we could go into waitrose and get up. good sorry go ahead no sorry frank i was saying why why do you think from an economist perspective why did venison prices in the uk tank in COVID times versus you would have thought they would have skyrocketed because people realized where the food was coming from and that is a very secure model of food. It's a, if it, from a food security perspective, that's a very secure line of getting food versus, you know, here in the States, you couldn't find meat in the grocery stores through COVID. Well, all right, a couple things. First on the UK and then on the US quickly on this, because it is very different. The US has its own model, which I think needs to reform too. But, um, but here in the UK, most of the venison sales went to high-end restaurants, as you said. And that's a particular type of supply chain. You bring in the fresh meat, it goes into London, it's in these very, you know, very nice British cuisine restaurants. When COVID hit, those restaurants were all shut down by the government. Oh, you know, COVID sense. didn't shut yeah. it down. The government did. They outlawed all those restaurants. They, they only opened them up partially on Monday this week. So that meant that you then could maybe go into grocery stores, but grocery stores are very different value chains, very different packaging, very different production things. So to switch from taking, you know, one or two deer a week into a restaurant in London to now feeding a big grocery store with branches all over the country. Now, Waitrose, which is one of the upmarket grocery stores, did that, and they were bringing in venison much cheaper than beef over the last year. So there were some places you could get some really well-priced venison. Sansbury Wash Shop, they've just started. There's a farm up in York that's bringing it in. So they figured out. So 
that and in fact i'm going to go meet, meet a guy um probably next week here in oxfordshire that um used to be in the businesses and thinking thinking of getting back into it so there's some talk about it now and it also has to do with the sort of anti-meat thing is wild meat is better for you than than the factory farm meat and you know if we're going to you know the there's a whole big thing here about the climate impacts of the meat industry. Well, that's the factory farm meat industry. That's not, Correct. you know, not, not the, the wild meat industry. Right. Yeah. So there's there's that. But now this country is talking about banning trophies. Okay. So they want to ban the imported trophies, and it's this crazy. We won't go there, but it's this crazy way the government is thinking right now. But now back to the states. It's illegal for the hunter. Say you go off and hunt in Louisiana, or whatever, to take and sell that meat to either a restaurant or to a grocery store chain. So the U.S. outlawed the commercialization of meat. So you can only bring it home and cook it for yourself. Now my my nephew lives in Colorado. is actually a wildlife butcher in Craig, Colorado, and so he works nonstop, as you can imagine, from September to about January, twenty four seven. Because, you know, these guys got their guns, they go up and they shoot the animal, but then they don't know how to butcher it. So he's got right. a business. So you can, there's a bit of value chain. You can make money butchering, but the pieces that he then butchers, you can't commercialize. You can't right. put it into, like in France or in the UK, you could put that into a restaurant and put it in the grocery store. And the U.S. outlaws it, which I think is completely nuts. I think the U.S. should allow the, the meat that's coming out of the wild areas to go into the, the food system go in so you could buy it at your local grocery store but right now you can't do you think that the reason they, they they have not commercialized the sale of wild game is the potential proliferation of poaching and is that even something to think about today given the regulation and the system and the framework that we have in place today versus 60 years ago? Well, yeah, I mean, it's poaching. It's, you know, I mean, poaching in wildlife is cattle wrestling for cattle. I mean, yes, if there's a product out there you can steal and sell, you're going to try and do it. And so you have to have rules and regulations. Back in the late 19th century, it was a bit of a free-for-all. And so when the, when, when the if you will, the, the American colonialists moved west and colonized the rest of the North America there state by state, they went out and there was a lot of offtake and no regulation. And so the government sort of made a decision, okay, you can hunt, but only for yourself. Um, in Kenya, they made a decision just to stop hunting. Um, so it could have gone that way in the States. So it's sort of an anomaly of a decision made well over a century ago. Today, of course, you could regulate just like any cattle farmer, any chicken farmer does. They don't wipe out all their stocks. They manage them. So in the U.S., even today, um, the states manage the, the trophies very well. They manage the amount who gets to hunt and so on. So once that stuff is harvested, why not allow it to be commercialized? You know, why not allow it to go into the food chain? It'd be great. You could have what they have in France, Le Chasse, in, in the autumn. Um, the hunters are out there, and that food goes into the local restaurants. And you have all this great local venison. It's part of the culture. Is it the hunting season is is venison season in the restaurants. It's fabulous, yeah. you know. No, it's an amazing system. I wish we had So it I'm happy other things. people hunt so I can eat it, if you will. <laughs> I'm more into eating. Well, I, um, I know that we're getting close to you getting ready for your meeting. Um, and even, you know, I, you know, I love having this conversation with you because even the first time we met, we didn't know each other from a bar of soap. And uh, every time we talk, obviously, we'll get to know each other a little bit more. But I think it's such a practical, pragmatic viewpoint that you bring. And again, it's not self-serving. Um, and so I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. And I just want to thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing with the African Wildlife Foundation. 
Yeah, well, I'm working with working with the African Wildlife Economy Institute and the School of Wildlife Conservation, and both of them working with AWF, which is another organization. Too many African wildlife organizations. The um, just quickly on um, um, ways forward, you were talking about if it went away. One of the challenges is that the need to build the industry and get young people hunting and more people hunting. I remember a story. This is going back 15, 20 years in Canada where the Canadian National Park System had set up a whole program with really good pricing and, you know, and licensing and everything. And then they couldn't sell any hunts because the young people weren't hunting. So they had a whole business model for the parks that included hunting and the, the, the forest reserves and so on, but they didn't have the customers. Now, in the African context, I think it's critically important to promote domestic hunting. It's, you know, it's great to bring in the rich guys overseas that want to do it for the holidays. But for this industry to survive, in, in Zimbabwe, for example, there's no built-on hunting. Only foreign tourists can come in and hunt. No, if the, the industry is going to make any sense for Zimbabweans, they have to be part of the business. They have to be able to go out and hunt their wildlife like Americans hunt their wildlife. So if Americans and Canadians can do it, we should have Zimbabweans, Kenyans, South Africans, Zambians, and so on hunting their wildlife, plus bringing in the foreign tourists. And so I think the big capacity building is to develop domestic um, industry and get more people in and get the rules and regulations set up so the locals can benefit from their own their own resources yeah. and be part of an economy built around their own resources. There you go. No, and I love that. And I think that's the key is building economies around resources that are that the economy then sustains. Yeah. Because that's the trick. We want these, we want wildlife. I want wildlife around for my kids and my grandkids as a hunter. You as a non-hunter want wildlife around for your grandkids and their kids one day. So yeah. it's a win-win situation. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, but it's, the industry has to be bigger than just, well, in Kenya, they, de they depend mostly on the foreign ecotourism tourists, the photographic tourists. In Zimbabwe, maybe they depend more on the hunting tourists. You need to build the, the local economies around wildlife use. And so it's 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 Africa's wildlife for Africa's people with some export potential for those countries, but with a primarily a very resilient domestic industry like they have in South Africa and, and in the U.S. That's got to be the bedrock. So that's what we got to do, Robbie. We got to help the locals develop their, their hunting industry down there and get more customers and get more people out there shooting animals, you know, Yeah, and, I think and enjoying the key it. Message, the key message is African, it's Africans' wildlife for Africans' use. And uh, this whole idea of eco-colonialist viewpoints being put on them by the state of Connecticut, the state of New York, the state of California, DEFRA in the UK is... It's a little bit, it's a bit silly. It's a bit pathetic, actually, you know, they, they, you know the, the way, but there you go. I mean, that's just the way it is. And it, the way to be resilient about that is, for example, if the UK bans imports of trophies, so what? If you've got a huge domestic industry that's, like I said, in South Africa, it's about 15% is, is, is uh, foreign hunters, 85% is domestic. So when COVID hit, they were much more resilient. They got everything shut down at first, but then the local guys went back. So the industry stayed on because they had a locally um, resilient industry. You know, it's mm -hmm. built into the culture. And just now the government's come out with a big report on rhinos and lions and tigers and bears oh my you know they've covered it all and it's you know you've got the press about the the, the lion um, breeding that's another call but 
they're very clear at the government level that hunting is part of the fabric of the country. Hunting is part of the culture there. And it's at the, and they're not talking about foreign hunters. They're talking about Africans in South Africa hunting for the, for the pot and for pleasure. And, you know, and so there's no call in South Africa to stop hunting. They just want to maybe improve the standards a bit, but they don't want to stop the industry at all, you know, which I think is great. Well, I appreciate that, Frank. And I'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, had a phenomenal conversation as usual. And uh, just thank you. Thank you. Let's for keep in touch, Robbie. Yes, sir, we will. Okay. Cheerio. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.